Let's pray first before we read the Word of the Lord. God, as I prepared the sermon, I, I'm excited about the power and the majesty of Jesus, and thank you that you've come down with power not just to heal people 2,000 years ago, but that you've come to heal and open blind eyes even now. And I pray that the, the meager effort that I have done to prepare these words, even though they might seem muddy and unfit for what needs to happen in our hearts and eyes, I pray that you take this mud and as it's applied to our eyes and applied to our ears and our hearts, that you would then wash us and open our hearts and ears and eyes to believe and see that you, Jesus, are the living God, that you are the Messiah, you're the Savior, and you are the comforter for us in our suffering. So come and do that good work, I pray. Despite my efforts and our efforts together, we know that you can work miracles, and we pray that you do that among us today. In Jesus' name, I ask this. Amen. Before we read the Word, let me just remind you that all of us are suffering. To some degree or another, we all suffer. Some of us have suffered a lot more than others, I would imagine, because I know some of your stories pretty well. And some of you I know are suffering right now. Serious sickness or deep sorrow is in your heart today, and some of you are wondering questions like, why is this happening? God, are you punishing me? Did I do something wrong to deserve this? These are the types of things that we ask when we suffer. When will it end? Can you help me like you helped him or her? And so today we're coming from these dark and divergent paths that we're on, but we're all in the, the darkness of suffering together. And I see John 9 as a light along the way. I see it like a safe place in the woods where you see the porch light on when you've been wandering in the darkness for too long and you need a place to go. This is a story that can show us the healing and the help of our Lord Jesus, who says here he is the light of the world. So let's read these first seven verses of John 9, verses 1 through 7, as we begin. Hear the word of the Lord. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world... I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord our God stands firm forever. And this is the good news that now we get to hear from John chapter 9. As we read this first verse about Jesus passing by, he's left the temple where they were about to stone him in the previous chapter, and now he's passing by near a synagogue apparently, and he sees a man born blind. Did you catch that? Jesus sees a man who can't see him. Now let's just stop there and just get this out of the way and get this cleared up. Some of you feel as though God doesn't know what you're going through. My suffering, my pain, can you not see what's happening out here, God? Don't you have any concern for me? And the fact is, Jesus can see you when you can't see him. I mean, can anybody here see Jesus right now? Maybe we can see his signs, his handiwork, his, his fingerprints, his, his works. But we can't see him physically. He's in heaven now, but he sees us. He sees everything that you're going through. And he's not going to pass your life by like he didn't pass this man's life by without seeing what you're going through. He's, he's not just going to let your troubles pass by without notice. Jesus sees us in our blindness when we can't even see. That's just verse 1. Look at verse 2 with me. The disciples asked Jesus about this blind man. Who sinned, Jesus, that this man was born blind? Was it his parents or his own personal sin? Yeah, I can't see you guys, but I can still hear you. Hello. I might be blind, but I can hear. This is an awkward moment for the blind man, right? I'm sitting right here. Uh, my mom would have given me a nice backhand if I would have said something like this about someone with blindness when I was a kid. 
But here's the disciples, these grown men. Who said God was Jesus? Was it him or his parents? Why? Why is he suffering? Why the blindness? Why do we suffer? This is the question that I want to take a few minutes on now before we really jump into the heart of the story. What does the Bible say about why suffering exists in the world? Well, I'm going to offer four reasons and two purposes for suffering. Reasons are different than purposes, okay? There's an explanation. There's four of them that I want to pull out from this text and from the Scripture in general. The first reason that we suffer is because of the fall, the fall into sin. This is when Adam and Eve, starting with Adam, took the, the forbidden fruit. He violated God's authority and said, I'll be in charge now. I'll do whatever I want. Thank you very much. And then suffering and sickness and sin Suffering, sickness, and death came into the world because of sin. Romans 5 tells us because of one man's sin, we are all suffering. And because we all participate in that, we'll call that the universal cause. There's cause and effect. Why is there death? Why is there blindness in this man or any other suffering in the world? It's because of the cause of sin. I don't think I need to belabor this point, but the fact is, when that question was asked, was it his sin or his parents' sin? The answer is, Jesus says, neither. You could say more broadly, it's, it's not he or them, it's, it's we that sin that causes it. It's all of our sin collectively, universally. We are the reason they're suffering in the world. Babies are blind. Other special needs exist. All sorts of suffering happens because of the fall. The second reason they're sin in the world, the Bible tells us, is because of the fool. And don't think, oh, that's the other person that the Proverbs talk about. That's the enemy within. That's all of us. We all have a little fool living inside of us, don't we? We all have a little foolishness inside of us. And and the Bible says this is a reason that there is suffering. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins shall die. There's a real personal connection there. You screwed up, you're going to pay some consequences. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that there were even Christians coming to the church to receive the Lord's Supper. And when they came, they had unrepentant sin in their lives, and they were even getting sick and dying because of that. There is a direct cause and result of personal sin leading to personal consequences and suffering. Yes, that's another reason. Everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is that you've screwed up or you've been foolish. Some of us screw up more than others. A wise man told me recently, he's a young man, he's only 17, you might meet him soon, but a wise man told me recently that he was out there on the streets on the west side of Chicago. Actually not too far from here. But he was he was hanging out on the streets, he was, he was gangbanging, he was slanging. These are the things he said. He said, I was hanging, banging, and slanging. And he said, it was really fun for a while while I got to point guns at people and shoot at them. But he said, it all changed when someone pointed a gun at me and shot me three times last week. He said, then my whole perspective shifted. And he says, now, when I hear all that gangbanging talk, he said, it sounds really foolish. Sometimes we face suffering because it's a direct consequence of our own sin. Thankfully, and praise God, sometimes that's the very thing that saves our lives, is the suffering we experience because of our sin. But Jesus rules that out in this case. He says it was not the man's personal sin or his parents that led him to blindness. So, moving on, what's another reason? Verse, um, point number three, reason number three. Our fellow sinners, the fellow sinners and strugglers among you cause you great suffering, don't they? Wouldn't you like to blame it on everybody else and say, hey, I, I don't want to take all the credit, but it's those people that are committing such injustice. The greed, the hatred, this is the lack of concern, the fear that leads people to do all sorts of bad things to each other. This is so obvious from the Bible, from the daily news, from your own experience and mine. It's other people, the enemies all around us, not just the enemy within us, that cause us to suffer. Last week we lost a friend who had come to our church for four or five years, Ricky. Ricky Simmons, I don't know if you remember him. He looks like someone else in this picture, because this is a young picture of him, but imagine him without the hair. Ricky, you might have seen him coming into the church often late during the sermon. He'd come and hear a little bit of the word. He'd always join us for lunch. Sometimes he'd come in just for lunch, but he'd been coming for years. Never really got to be very close to Ricky. He never became a really close part of the family, but we saw him often. We tried to encourage him. He was always wearing that, that brown jumper, the overalls, the working clothes. Remember him. Ricky passed away last week. I was talking to his brother uh, down the street who owns uh, Supreme Realty on the corner here at 65th and Cottage. And, you know, he said, um, you know, the drugs and all the, the heaviness of life just caught up with him. He spent about a week in the hospital before the organs just started failing. 
and he eventually passed away. And so uh, a few of us went to his funeral the other day, and um, I was just reminded as I was talking to his brother about the pain and the suffering that other people cause. Because even though he was responsible for the way he lived his life and, and the things that he was you know, addicted to, there were other people, the dealers on the streets, who were also responsible for that. And they didn't care about Ricky's health. They weren't not at his funeral last week. They were just there for the money, for the greed. And if you trace that up the food chain of power, and, and let's just keep it in the idea of drug usage, there are people in high positions who are making decisions that don't care about the people at the bottom. All the way up to the top of the chain, up in Washington, D.C., and it trickles down to Cook County courthouses and city hall and, and then our blocks and the people that we love. And we're all affected by people's greed and people's lack of humanity or concern for someone else's. There's no compassion sometimes in the human heart or systems that we've created. It's the enemy all around us. And there's a fourth reason that we suffer, though. Our ancient foe, that is that great serpent who tries to deceive the world, Satan, the enemy beyond our understanding, beyond our human viewpoint, beyond our human awareness, there is sometimes suffering that is so dark and so terrible that it has to be explained by something so sinister as even Satan himself. You remember that man in the Old Testament, actually the oldest book of the Old Testament, Job. Job was a good man relative to other people. He was a good man, but he experienced many, many bad things. Job is described not as perfect, but as blameless, related to others, and upright. He feared God, and he shunned evil. And yet when Job's animals were carried off, and when his servants were taken away, when his crops were burned, and when his house was blown down by a windstorm, collapsed and killed all ten of his children at once, his friends showed up on the crime scene to comfort him. We'll use that loosely, comfort him. And they said things like this in chapter 4, verse 7. Who, Job, being innocent, has ever perished? Okay, somebody had to do something wrong to deserve this. When were the upright ever destroyed? If you do what's right, Job, you don't suffer. Job's friend says, Job, you're suffering greatly. You must have sinned greatly. But if we see behind the scenes, God shows us in Job chapter 1 and 2 that there's something sinister happening behind the scenes that has nothing to do with Job's personal responsibility or even other people. Satan is behind the attack. He says to God, I would like to trip Job up and bring him down. I can, watch me, I will steal Job and his heart from you, Lord. He fails in that process, but he certainly wreaks havoc in the effort. And at the end of the book of Job, chapters 38 through 42, we see, as clearly as any other book in the Bible, a picture of how God has a mysterious plan in our suffering. Despite our own sin, despite other people's intentions or lack of compassion for us, despite even Satan's best efforts, God has a plan that goes beyond our understanding and reminds us, I'm God and you're not. Would you just humble yourself and watch me? If you humble yourself, I will lift you up in due time from your suffering and I will put you in a place of peace and rest. So four reasons we've seen. The fall, the fool that lives within us, the enemies without us, and Satan himself, our great adversary and foe, Four reasons that we suffer in the world. All of us suffer. Sometimes because we're bad, sometimes just because the world is broken. Sometimes because we're villains, otherwise sometimes we're victims. But why is there suffering? We can answer all the questions and give all the reasons, but that still doesn't help the pain go away, does it? Do you feel like it's all better now that I've explained four reasons from the Bible, why there's suffering? No, because we still have the pain and the ache and the tears and the reality check that's still waiting for us when we leave this place today. There's two purposes in suffering. This is where maybe some hope begins to break through. God is working in our suffering. Two purposes we see from the text. John chapter 9. The first one is in verse 3. Jesus said, It's not that the man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That the works of God might be displayed in the theater of this man's suffering. This man has a story, like you do and I do. We each have a story that God's written, and it's a long story. And sometimes it's very painful, and sometimes it feels like the pain is a very long, slow pain. Thankfully, God has a purpose in the pain, and he's writing your story not just for the purpose of hurting you, but for refining you and shaping you. And there's always something God is teaching us if we would listen He's teaching us something about himself, perhaps, or about ourselves, perhaps. And so, what is it that God is teaching you? What's the purpose in your suffering? Maybe it's to break your grip on those idols that you've been holding on to, to show you that those will always fail you, 
and that there's only one God who will save you. Maybe his purpose in your suffering is to, to discipline you because he loves you. And he's saying, stop doing those things that are killing you. I love you and want better for you. So it's going to hurt. And you're going to stop doing it. Or maybe he says, I'm refining you and sanctifying you and making you shine like gold. And I know that it's painful, but I want you to be holy like I am holy. And you will love the way it is when it's all said and done. Maybe he's teaching you something about yourself. Like, I often think, why am I suffering? Well, maybe because I'm ungrateful. Maybe because I'm taking too many things for granted. Maybe I'm callous against other people who are suffering, and God's saying, well, here, let me, walk, let me let you walk in their shoes for a few miles, for a season, and see how it feels, so you can understand their pain better. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. It feels so good. It seems so easy. But he shouts to us in our pain. He says it's like a megaphone to rouse a dying world, a deaf world. He says, I've got to get your attention, so it's going to hurt. But then, do I have your attention now? Okay, now we can start doing business. We've had one of our families in the church whose apartment burned down years ago, and it was the little boy at the time, who's now in his 20s, but the little boy at the time, who woke up his family during the fire and said, get out, we're burning. And they all made it safely out, everyone in the building. It's, it's the shout that wakes us up, that's suffering. That's the smoke we're seeing all around us. That's the pain we don't understand. Why is this happening? It's so that we can get on with life as God intended. Are we learning the purpose of God in our suffering? David said in Psalm 119, verses 66 through 71, Teach me knowledge and good judgment. I want to learn, God. He says, well, okay, it's called the school of hard knocks for a reason. Okay, you're going to learn through the classroom of suffering. David says, before I was afflicted, that means before I suffered, I went astray. Did my own thing. But now I obey your word. Now, after I've suffered, I'm starting to get it, and I'm obeying you more and more. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees, your teachings. You are good, God, and what you do is good. I've now come to see that though I suffer, you're good, I'm learning about your goodness, and I am changing myself. I am becoming more holy like you. The second purpose I want to pull out from the text is maybe a little easier to grasp, maybe a little easier to swallow. It's in verse 4. Jesus says, God is displaying his works through suffering, and then he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while we still have daylight. Jesus says, while it's light, while I'm on the earth, I am the light of the world. Right there in verse 5. While I'm here, I'm shining in full glory. But there's a day when I'm going to leave. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to return to the Father. And then the one who sent me will be sending you because he prepares the disciples for this in other Gospels by saying, you are the light of the world. So we, he doesn't say, I'm, watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal the blind man. He says, we must do the works. God's got works he's doing, and we have works we're doing. This is why he sent me, so that we could do the works. So we're not just sitting around waiting for the miracles to happen. Waiting for suffering just to end. We're working towards that end while we wait for the pain to end. We are taking responsibility and saying, okay, I've got some say in why they're suffering in the world. I've contributed to suffering and sin. Now I have a responsibility to help alleviate and help ease the suffering of other people. Some of it very directly that I've caused. Others just because we're all in this together. God's work will be displayed. The question is, will it be displayed through you and me and our works of helping suffering people? What do you say when someone asks you, okay, you say there's a God, you say that Jesus is the way. What about all the suffering in the world? People ask me this all the time, of course, as a pastor. They probably ask you too. Why is there so much suffering in the world? And I try to get around to it eventually. After talking about God's purpose and especially the cross, eventually I get to this question. I try to ask this practical question of them. So, how much suffering have you contributed to in the world? Like in your family, or your friendships, or your own personal misery? And then, second question is, what are you doing to help solve the problem? Because we want God to do something about it, but he's actually commissioned us and given us tools so that we can help with the problem. So I, I usually try to end on a practical note. What are we doing to make the problem better and not just worse? Back to the story. It's a good one. It gets a little dirty at this point. So, is that, is that okay? Kids, are you okay if the story gets a little dirty right now? Okay, well, let's keep reading. Verses 6 and 7. 
The blind man just imagines listening intently to Jesus. Here's a rabbi I haven't met before. Maybe I've heard his name before. But here's a rabbi. He sees me with his disciples. They're condemning me with their statements. We think this guy sinned in some way. Jesus is not condemning me, so so far it's sounding pretty good to him. And then he's beginning to say things like, you know, the Son of God was sent to do great works, and he's the light of the world. This sounds really good. And then all of a sudden, And then, and then suddenly, he's not expecting, he doesn't see this coming, obviously he doesn't see it coming, but then all of a sudden he's feeling this wet, gooey mud on his face. I mean, it doesn't say that the man jumped back and says, what are you doing? He just, he put the mud on his face, okay? There's some real trust here for the stranger named Jesus that doesn't know very well, and there's a lot not, not told in the story, but here he is, mud on his face, and then Jesus says, go find a pool called Siloam, which means sent, the one that the Father has sent in verse 4, the Son that the Father sent, is now telling this man, I'm sending you, go to the pool, which is translated as sent. You've got something to do now. And there's three things I want you to see from this healing. Some of you are saying, that's gross. I can't get my mind off that. I'm not going to hear anything else you said. And others of you are saying, wow, cool, a theology of spinning. I'm going to have to tell my mom about this. This is awesome. Three things I want you to see from this healing. First, Jesus' healing comes in many packages. Jesus has a very diverse portfolio for his healing style. There's hope if you don't have a good insurance plan or a good deductible. There's hope if you don't attend a church where your pastor flies around on a private jet healing people around the world. There's hope for you because God heals people in different ways. Okay? Jesus has a variety of blind people in the Gospels he heals. And this is the only one where he does it with mud and saliva. Okay? Now there's another guy that he spits directly in his eyes and then touches him and the guy's like, it didn't work. And he's like, okay, watch this. And he touches him again. Okay, now I see everything clearly. But this is the only one. It's unique. This, this mud bath, this mud pack, this, this day at the spa, you could say, whatever he's doing, he's put this schmear on this guy's face. Doesn't make sense to us. It's very strange and it's very unique. It only happens once that we know of. Which tells me, okay, why would you expect Jesus only to heal in one way? Why would he expect you to have your suffering alleviated just like his or hers? It's going to be different. It's going to to be whatever he decides. That's how he's going to heal you. So if you're feeling like, I need a miracle, I need some help in my suffering, stay tuned. Keep trusting because Jesus is working. Don't limit him to what you think he should do. He's got a, a lot of different options on the table, okay? The second thing I want you to see from this healing story is that Jesus often piles on the handicaps before he actually pulls off the healing. He piles on the handicaps. What's a handicap? It's making it harder to see how this is actually going to work. Did you not hear what the story said? There's a guy without eyes at work. His eyes are completely blind and dark. And then Jesus says, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll put some mud on top. I'll just cake the guy's face with layers of mud. And that's going to somehow help. People around him think, this is a good idea. No, not really. Do you ever feel like that? Like, God, I can't see well enough as it is. You told me to go forward, and I can't see why or how you're going to... But then you're adding more difficulties to my line of sight. You're, you're putting more on me than I think I can handle. Do you ever feel like, God, the things you put on me are just too much? It doesn't make sense. Why are you doing this? But did you miss the word? He anointed the man's eyes with mud mud, and it doesn't sound like it fits, but he anoints the man's face with mud. That word anointing is used for kings when they're crowned and coronated as rulers. It's used of prophets when they're set apart and ordained for their ministry. Anointing. Jesus is the anointed one. The man will later say, I do believe that you are the Christ. You are the Mashiach, the anointed one. You are the king. This king is anointing his son with mud. Now, doesn't that sound more regal and noble? Don't you want more mud now put on your face by the hands of your healing, saving King Jesus? I mean, isn't it cool to think that the mud that he's putting on you is actually an anointing work? He loves you. He wants the best for you. He's setting you apart for his purposes. So he anoints you in your blindness with mud. John Calvin said, Jesus doubles the darkness so that he can magnify the cure. 
The mask of mud will magnify the miracle once it actually happens. It's an anointing. Jesus is actually recreating the man's eyes. We just see, Jesus, you're wrecking my life. He's actually recreating you a lot of times when you feel simply that he's wrecking your plans and your life. How can you possibly see? How can you possibly know what I'm going through? Jesus, how can you possibly expect me to see when you keep putting more mud on my eyes? And Jesus says, don't forget Genesis 2. I made you from the mud. I made you from the clay. I'm recreating your eyes and your heart to have new life. I consulted my, my uh, resident Jewish expert on this text, and here's a suggestion that he gave. Uh, the spit of Jesus, Jesus' saliva, represents the male. The male. The earth always represents the female. You know, when the seed goes in the earth and it bears fruit, there's the male seed and the female earth. He says this is like the male mixing with the female and creating something new, new life, new birth. Right in the eye sockets of this man. Genesis 2, I created you from the earth. You're fallen because of sin. There's suffering in your life and in your eyes. Now I will recreate you with my breath, with my word, with my living waters, with my touch. I am Jesus, the giver of life and sight. Now be healed. He puts them under man's eyes. But the healing doesn't quite come yet, as we know. So hold for that. Number three, the, the third thing I want you to see from the healing is that Jesus often requires faith and obedience before the healing even comes. Not always, but sometimes Jesus requires you to exercise faith and obedience before the healing will come or the suffering will cease. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus certainly made the first move in this story. And here's a blind man begging by the side of the road, and he's just sitting there. He doesn't ask for Jesus' help. Jesus just comes up, and when the disciples bring up the issue, he says, okay, I'll show you something cool, and he puts the mud on the man's face. But then he says to the, the blind beggar, now go, now, don't forget, he still has to walk from where he's sitting to wherever this pool of Sodom is, somewhere in Jerusalem, but he's got mud all over his face. He still can't see anything, so I don't know if he has a cane, if he's tapping it, or if he's groping and feeling with his hands or someone's leading him, but somehow he's got to shuffle his way along, still blind, now with mud all over his face, to the pool of Siloam, and there's got to be some sort of faith in the guy's heart. If nothing less, he still has to wash his face off in the pool, so for practical reasons, he's going to the water source, whatever the case, but here he is, going probably some, some small amount of faith or obedience in this stranger named Jesus who just put mud on his face. And isn't that just like Jesus? He says, I want you to go here. And you say, I can't see. Why am I, I can't see where I'm going. He says, trust me. Just take a few steps. Venture out in faith. Put a hand on someone. They'll help lead you. Someone wiser or older in the game. And so we take a few steps of faith. We begin to obey. And it's apparently completely opposite of what the world thinks when they say, Seeing is believing. And if you show me a miracle, then maybe I'll believe you're Jesus. Just like the Pharisees in this story that we'll see in a minute. They said, if you can show us some great sign, we'll believe, right? No, absolutely not. Jesus showed them a great sign. He healed a blind man right in front of where they were standing. He healed many people in plain view. He raised a dead man, Lazarus, from the grave. And what did they do? They didn't all say, we all believe. No, they said, let's kill him. Let's stone this man. He's, he's threatening our power hold. He's, he's taking, uh, um, he's threatening us, our, our positions of influence as religious leaders. And so seeing is not believing. And we can't expect anyone to even see a miracle today and, and just think, well, that's automatically going to work faith in their hearts. Because God requires faith first and obedience many times before the healing or miracle even happens. And so we would say we must believe in order to see we must believe in order to see. Do you believe that? Lenore believes that. Do you believe that? Anybody else? Vincent believes that. Let's continue in the story. At this point, let's stand up as we, as we read the next eight verses, just to give ourselves some exercise and keep the blood flowing. Verse 8 of John chapter 9. The neighbors and those who had seen this blind man before as a beggar were saying, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it's he. And others said, no, but he's like him, he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. I am the man. Yes, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. 
Then they said, where is he? And I said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day. Uh-oh. Oh, man. I didn't see that coming. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. The, the Pharisees asked again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, I put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God then, for he does not keep the Sabbath. This is like the religious Gestapo. This is the, the mafia. But the others on the other side said, there was a more open-minded crowd. They said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs then? And there was a division between the Pharisees, the religious leaders. You may be seated. Did you notice in verse 9 that everybody starts to see the man that can now see, that was formerly blind? Everybody's starting to look at him and talk about him, and they're all seeing the man that can now see, but actually they can't believe their eyes, even though they see him. They can't believe what they're seeing because it's so incredible. And, and in verse 15, they're now asking multiple times, this interrogation has really gotten underway. It's going to happen yet again later. This, this inquisition, who was this? When did it happen? How did it happen? Who are you? They're getting nervous. This is not fitting inside their little religious box. And this debate breaks out, verses 15 and 16, between the religious leaders. On the one side, Jesus is the Sabbath breaker. On the other side, let's give him a chance and see what happens. Why this focus on the Sabbath? Well, if you've read the Bible and the Gospels for a while, you know that often Jesus heals on the Sabbath. It's almost as if he does it on purpose, just to say, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. <laughs> I'm God. I can do whatever I want. I created the Sabbath. Now, I made the Sabbath for you. Watch me free you and heal you on the day of rest and worship. The Sabbath is, of course, the seventh day of the week. The Jews celebrated it on Saturday. We celebrate according to the resurrection day of Jesus on Sunday. But Jesus... Is, is taking this, this beautiful law, the Sabbath, the, the heart of God giving us rest and worship, and then he's saying, now, on top of that beautiful fourth commandment that I gave you, you've started to build these human fences around the law, okay? Like, don't knead dough on the Sabbath. Like, don't make any bread, okay? If you got up and made bread this morning or put the roasters on for the turkeys, then <clears throat> violation number one, you've broken the Sabbath, Okay? Kneading the mud, Jesus, that's just like kneading bread, you're doing work. Can't do that. Violation number two, walking to the pool of Siloam, that's work. You're walking somewhere to do something that's work-related. <clears throat> Violation number two. Number three, healing itself was forbidden on the Sabbath. Taking the water and splashing it on your face, even if it's healing you, if it wasn't a matter of life and death, and they would say, well, this is clearly not a matter of life and death, he's just getting his sight back, so that's not good enough. <clears throat> Violation number three, three strikes, Jesus is a Sabbath breaker, some of the leaders were saying. These guys, with their, their big Bibles and their big clipboards, they're walking around inspecting the religious inspectors of the day. It reminds me of the building inspectors that we had used to come in this building when we were still renovating it. The, the city team, you know, finding every violation, every code infraction that we had with their hard hats on and their clipboards. And, and I could just hear them saying to, to Jesus, you were working without a Sabbath permit. Violation. And you violated the city code for mixing clay without proper eye protection. And unsafe work environment. Bodily fluids coming in contact with someone else. And incorrect application of the mud to the medium. And you directed a man with disabilities down a road without a ramp, and he was blind and he didn't have the dimpled walking surfaces. That's a tripping hazard. And it was. We don't care if you can see. You broke our rules. That's what's important. Let's continue the story. Verses 17 and following. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about this man since he's opened your eyes? And he said, seeing a little more clearly now, he's a prophet. Okay, before it was just, well, this man named Jesus. Pretty sure he's a prophet now. Prophets can do pretty amazing things. The Jews, in verse 18, which means the Pharisees, because they're all Jews, but the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, did not believe that he had been blind. Okay, so now they're like, all right. We could easily say Jesus is not able to do miracles, but obviously you can see, so now what we're going to say is you were never blind to start with. He planted you in the crowd. Like in one of these big healing crusades, maybe they planted someone in the back and said, okay, just right time, I want you to pop up and act like you're healed, even though you were never sick in the first place. That's what they think now. You were never blind to start with. That's the answer. That's how we're going to explain this one away. And so what they do is they go in verse 18 and call his parents. And in verse 19, they ask the parents, is this your son? Who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, 
we know this is our son, and we know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. So he's probably at least 13 years old, had the bar mitzvah, he's now of age, somewhere after that age, here he is, he can speak for himself. So for the second time in verse 24, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. That means you better tell us the truth this time. Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Why do we know it? Because he broke the Sabbath. And he answered in verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. Like, I haven't had that theology class yet. Okay? But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see! I mean, what else can I tell you? I can't tell you where he came from or where he's going or what he's done to other people, but I couldn't see, and now I see! And sometimes that's all you've got is a testimony. You don't have all the theology down. You don't have the apologetics down. Sometimes you don't have the degree or the education that someone else has that's coming against your Jesus. But you say, okay, all I can say is this. I was buried in guilt. I was forgiven. I was so self-righteous and proud. And now I've been humbled. I couldn't get along with my wife or my kids. And, and now I have this love in my heart for them. I keep struggling and messing up, but now I keep going back to my Savior. That's all I can tell you, is that I didn't love him before, and now I do. I'm not sure what happened, but he got a hold of me. This is this man's testimony. One of the young man in the neighborhood I mentioned, he was shot three times last week. He's now saying, God has got my attention. I want to live my life for him. He's got a testimony now. You have a testimony if Jesus has entered your story, if he has changed your heart. You have a testimony. Are you sharing that with people? I know that you don't have maybe a PhD in theology, neither do I. But are you being faithful to say, this is what has happened to me. I want to talk about it. And so the story goes on. Verse 26, they said to him, what did this man do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he says, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. It's just like Jesus said in chapter 8. Some people just won't listen to the truth. They can't listen to it because they can't bear to hear it. They're stubborn. It's like in Acts 7 when Stephen was preaching about the Jewish traditions and history of how awesome God's redemptive plan was for his people. And then when he comes to the part of then he sent the Messiah and he was crucified at your hands and he raised from the dead. And now he's telling us not just to preach to the Jews but to all the nations. They're like, what? You can't say that this salvation is for all the nations. And they plug their ears. La, 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 la. You don't hear you anymore, Stephen. And they stone him. Some people just can't bear to hear the truth. He says, I've told you three times now, but you would not listen. Not could not listen, would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then I love it. It gets really sassy here. <laughs> really sarcastic. I love this one. Why do, you, why do you want me to keep telling you a story? Do you want to become his disciple too? Huh? Is that right? I, it's, pretty, it's pretty good for me so far. Do you want to join the, the club? And they say, How dare you? You are his disciple in verse 28. But we are the disciples of Moses. Tradition. Something firm. Something we know. The law. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Well, they knew where he came from. They just didn't want to admit that he had authority. They didn't want to say, well, he came from heaven, like he was saying over and over. So we don't know where he comes from. He says he's coming from God, but he could be coming from anywhere. He has no authority over us. And then the man answered, verse 30, well, this is an amazing thing. This is almost another miracle happening in the story. You don't know where he comes from, and you're saying he's not from God and he's a sinner, yet he opened my eyes. Hmm. At this point, this blind man brilliantly argues in such a way that they're becoming blind. They don't know what to say. They're stumbling all over themselves. He's leaving them speechless. And he keeps going in verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This is a theology of prayer. And they haven't said, you're incorrect. That's exactly what the Jews believe. God would use him if he says, Lord, use me to heal this blind man then God must be on his side if he's healing. And then verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. In all of our stories, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's not a single healing of a blind person, but the prophet said, when Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind. 
a history of prayer and healing right here. He's teaching the, the religious teachers, and he's an uneducated beggar who all that he could do was say, help, alms for the poor, and this sort of thing. Then in verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This is a Christology. He, he's saying, let me teach you about Jesus the Christ, and they can't disprove him. If he heals, he must be of God. Then they answered him in verse 34. They have nothing to argue. They have no reasoning, no logic. But what they say is, you're a sinner. We knew it. You were born in sin, just like your Jesus' disciples asked in the beginning of the story. We know that you were steeped in sin, born in sin, because why? You were born blind. So how can you dare lecture us, the leaders of Israel? And they cast him out. They cast him out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him from the religious life of Israel. That's what his parents feared earlier when they said, we don't want to answer the question because he's of age. Ask him, it says, because they were afraid that they would be thrown out because that was the decision. If anyone follows Jesus as the Christ, cast them out. There's no logic. There's no reasoning to it, though. It's just fear. It's just fear. These men are, as I often call some of our modern-day atheists, brilliant fools. There's some brilliant fools in the world. People a lot smarter than me and you. But if they're atheists, how can they be wise? How can they have the complete picture? They're brilliant, blinded fools. Knowledge puffs up, the Bible says. Jesus said in John chapter 8 that the truth will set you free, but it's not just truth, generically, cold, hard facts that you can learn in the lab. This is Jesus saying, if you abide in me, in my words, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a personal truth. This is a relational truth. This is a God-centered truth, and the Pharisees are missing it. They're very educated. They have a lot of knowledge. But any one of us could say to them, you should know better. You know a lot. I'm not asking you to know more. I'm just saying you should know better than to cast a blind man out of the synagogue who can see now. You should know at a deeper level. You should know at a heart level, a faith level, a love level. You should know better than this. You can really recognize smart people, truly brilliant people, by their humility. When they might say, well, I don't know how it happened. Or maybe you're right. Let's talk a little bit more about it. Or I don't understand the situation well enough. Let's go a little deeper. And then maybe I will. You can re really recognize smart people by their humility, not their arrogance, and their exclusion of other people, and their distancing themselves from people they're hurting, especially, especially if they disagree with them. And then in verses 28 and following, I'm sorry, not 20 and following, um, verses 35 and following. We pick this up next. Can I ask my two musicians to come forward at this point? We're going to have a little, mood music, a little mood music during this portion of the ending of the sermon. So at this point in the sermon, the blind man has left them speechless. He's, he's out now on the streets again. No longer a beggar. He's probably saying to them, when they said... Get out of our club. Get out of the synagogue. He probably said to them, no problem. I'll, I have nothing left but my sight. <laughs> so thank you very much. Like, I don't want to be a part of your club anyway. Thank you very much. And then, as the music begins, verse 37. Then verse 35. Jesus comes back into the story. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Well, the Jews would have known from Daniel chapter 7 that the Son of Man, and many other passages like it, was God the King, reigning on the throne of heaven, who had come down one day to rule the nations. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man that the prophets have prophesied? And he says, Tell me exactly who I'm dealing with, that I might believe. And then Jesus said to him, you've seen him. It's the first time in the passage the man with open eyes has actually seen Jesus now for the first time. You've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you now. And the man said, Lord, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He fell at Jesus' feet in honor, in love, and in gratitude. No one had to say to him, here's the rules. You don't break the Sabbath by doing this, that, and the other. 
Nobody forced him down to his knees and said, this is the proper time to give thanks. It was Thanksgiving week. Nobody said to him, hey, you're in church now, so you need to sing. And you need to act holy. Nobody had to tell him because why? His eyes were opened. His heart was opened. His mouth was open, and he praised his Savior. No one had to encourage him and say, come on, this is what we do now. We're Christians. Everybody, let's orchestrate it. Let's make it organized. Let's force each other to act holy now. He said, I love this man. I don't really know that much about you, but I know you opened my eyes, and I'm going to worship you. I follow you. I love you like you love me. You found me. I was lost. I was blind, but now I see. I was a wretch. I was a beggar. I had nothing in my hands to bring. I had nothing to lose, though. I had everything to gain. So when you came to me, Jesus, it was the only sane choice to say, yes, I believe. Thank you, guys. Jesus gives the people a choice at the end of the story. Those last two verses, last three verses, Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see, okay, those who do not see, the blind, I came so that they may see. And I came that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard them say these things. They take it a little personal and they're saying, oh, I mean, I resemble that comment, right? Like, I'm feeling a little bit like you're talking to me. Are we blind too? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You see what he's saying? He's not saying I came in this world to judge and condemn people. Not for judgment in the terms of condemning. He says, I came in here to discern and divide and expose people's hearts. That's what verse 16 said. He divided the crowd. Some religious leader says he's breaking the Sabbath. Other religious leader says, let's give him a chance. He came to judge our hearts, to expose what's already there. And if we say what's in my heart is goodness, and what I have is 20-20 vision, I know the way the world works, I don't need your help, Jesus, I don't need you to heal me, I'm completely healed already, I don't need a physician, then Jesus says, okay then, you're showing that you're blind. And if we say, Jesus, I know that I'm blind, I know that you've come to open the eyes of the blind, please heal me and help me in my suffering, then he says, yes, then you see. You see clearly. The religious elite had their power, their positions, their possessions. They had a lot to lose. They were very afraid. And so they stood in judgment on Jesus. So they wouldn't lose control of their life and their reputations. Like so many of us want to hold on to the fun things in life and our reputations. We don't want to give it all over to Jesus. But others of us come as a beggar, like this man, and say, I recognize that I'm blind. I recognize that I have nothing really to offer of worth. But I come saying thank you. I come saying thank you. That's all I can say, Jesus, is thank you. This man trusted Jesus. Why? Not simply because he healed him, but ultimately he would trust him just like any of us would. Because a man who suffered this much, a man born blind and spending his whole life in the darkness, didn't just meet a, a powerful Savior, he met a suffering Savior. He met a Savior who would then one day go to the cross. And the same question asked of that man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, could be asked of Jesus. Who sinned that that man would go to the cross? Was it his sin? This man who was crucified, was it his sin that put him on the cross? No. And the answer would be no. Just like the, Jesus said to the disciples, no, it wasn't his sin that made him blind. No, it wasn't Jesus' sin that put him on the cross. It was our sin. It was our shame that he bore. It was our nakedness that he displayed to the world. It was our guilt that he took upon himself. That's a man that knows our suffering because he suffered himself. That's the man you can trust. You can trust a person who suffered. They have a story that's worth hearing. And if you're suffering, you can trust him because he's not just a God that stands far away and says, I'll heal you from a distance. He came into the pain and into the world of darkness and he became the light of the world in a very close way. My grandfather's mother died when he was eight years old. My grandfather's mother died when he was eight. He spent the rest of his life running from God suffering in a spiral of deep pain and feeling of betrayal from God. And in World War II, he was a young Marine over in the uh, Asian Pacific Theater, and he almost got blown up by a hand grenade that was thrown into his foxhole, which is the hole that the soldiers dig for themselves for protection. His friend jumped into his foxhole, and he couldn't get in there, and the buddy was blown to death by the grenade, and his life was spared. And he said, God, you must have a plan for me. And he was thankful for the moment, but then he went on living his life, 
And then when he was in the 80s, the 1980s, when I was a teenager, he was uh, in the hospital with a brain aneurysm. His brain was bleeding, and we thought he was dying. And then once again, we all prayed for him, and he prayed a prayer, and God spared his life yet again. And yet, after the prayers were answered, he just continued living his life as he previously did. In 2004, my grandfather had cataract surgery on both eyes, and the procedure did not go well. He was called in that week for an immediate second surgery to save his sight. That week in 2004, I was preaching from John chapter 9. Fourteen years ago, I said this in my sermon, I'm praying that the doctors would both save my grandfather's eyes, but more than that, that God would open his spiritual eyes to see the light of Christ and to follow the God who is following him and pursuing him through each of these trials. I hope that his suffering is a window through which God's light will shine. I said that about my grandfather. I spent most of my life praying for my grandfather and annoying him, inviting him to church, and there was nothing ever that came of it. But six years after his cataract surgery and my prayer and my sermon on John 9, six years later in February of 2010, I was preaching again at my grandfather's funeral. And I was amazed as I preached about the grace of God that had come to my grandfather in his 80s, in the last few months of his life. Because his eyes were finally opened towards the end to the beauty of the light of Jesus, the light of the world. He'd opened my grandfather's heart. He'd opened his eyes. And I opened my mouth and I praised my Lord and I thanked him for what he'd done. And what a great Thanksgiving week this would be. If whatever you're holding on to, whatever bitterness or misunderstanding about your suffering or why God's put you through it or why someone else has caused you to suffer the way you have, wouldn't it be a great gift if you, if you just simply say, Lord, I need you. I can't see what's next. I can't see why you're calling me to forgive or to obey, but I'm going to trust you because you're a man who suffered. You know, you're a man of sorrows, and you're a man of resurrection, and you're a man of healing. And I trust you today, and I thank you today, and I worship you today, that whatever mud you put on my face, or whatever crap the world has put on me, or whatever my own sins have bought for me, I know that you have come to anoint me with trial and with treasure, with, with blindness and with beauty and glory, and I believe that you're doing good works in my life. And so whatever I can't say about my suffering, whatever I don't know about that, I know this. I was blind, but now I see. Amen? Amen? We'll stand as we commit ourselves to Jesus in this closing song of worship. Jesus, we thank you that though we were sinners, you forgave us. Though we were running, you sought us and you caught us and you bought us with your own blood. And by your wounds and by your suffering, our suffering and our sins have been redeemed. I pray now that in this moment, God, this Thanksgiving week, you would open our hearts and open our eyes. And without any coercion or need for instruction, you would open our mouths to bless your holy name, to thank you, and to be a blessing to others by sharing our testimony to the watching world. Multiply your love through us today, we pray, and we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.